Despite the chokingly thick, wet smoke being emitted from the smoldering fire in the center of the small, one room, not even a bar, not really accommodation, but really just a small shack, which the people of this small town occasionally use as a meeting place or to escape the rain, and is looked after by an elderly man who sits more or less motionless, uninterested in either Ginjiro or Shin, the man who was once a very important mentor to Ginjiro. Shin was the commander of the Naginata or spear-wielding contingent of the Kazekani clan when Ginjiro was merely a young man and was trained personally by Shin and indoctrinated into the more or less peasant conscript spear militia of the Kazekani clan. Shin himself, while not a member of the Kazekane, does come from a minor noble house and therefore was accorded a little more respect for his position. He personally vouched for Ginjiro to be indoctrinated into the relatively small force of samurai the Kazekane clan even had on retention. Long into the night, the two men sat talking. Long into the night, remembering the various battles and conflicts the two of them participated in. Yet both men remained guarded, both men unwilling to reveal what's led them into this small, isolated mountain village. So far away, seemingly, at least, from the great conflicts raging across Sengoku-era Japan. At last, with the bare fingers of a distant morning lighting up the edges of the horizon, Ginjaro pointedly asked Shin, what is he doing here? It has been years since Shin left the Kazekane, claiming old age. However, a small mountain town like this was the last place Ginjaro expected to encounter this Naginata master. With a deep sigh, Shin tells Ginjaro, that is going to be a long story, and if he would be willing to remain in town for a couple of days, Sheen would inform him of everything that has come to pass. Looking over the old grain man in front of him, muscles slackened by age and dense dark spots covering his arms, Ginjiro reluctantly agrees and prepares to stay in the small, unnamed mountain town to not only learn the story of what happened to Shin over the last decade, but also receive some vital training with the Naginata, which Shin hardly has the strength and will to use anymore. Shin leads Ginjiro down the small, wooded path to a shack of his own alongside the modest river which flows through town. And Ginjiro merely lays out his bedroll and allows himself to drift off into a much-needed rest, sleeping more soundly along the side of this babbling river than he has in many, many months. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome back to One Guy, One Roll, the solo role-playing podcast where I, your host, player, and GM Hero Cities play role-playing games for your listening pleasure. 
Once again, we are diving back into the solo role-playing game Ronin, where we are following the story of Ginjiro, the orphan, as he traverses his way across Japan during the Sengoku period. Basically, this is a period of Japanese history where the entire country was subdivided into different clans that are controlled by various daimyo and their samurai. Although we don't know exactly why Ginjiro, who at one point was a samurai for the Kazikani clan, ended up leaving their employ as a samurai and is now a wandering ronin traveling along the various pathways of medieval Japan, perhaps just wandering aimlessly or towards some unstated or unknown goal. Either way, I've been having an absolutely fantastic time using the system and its dice-driven yet seemingly organic method of telling a story. It's very simple, it's very straightforward, and it's quick. Although we have not encountered our first villain yet, our reputation is at four of six bubbles, which means it's becoming increasingly more likely we will encounter our first of our three primary antagonists. I'm happy to be able to get this recording done before I head back out for the next couple of weeks once again for work. As our brief introduction highlighted, Ginjiro has made his way into this small mountain town where he has encountered somebody from his past, an old mentor, a mentor from his past with the Kazekane clan, a mentor who left the Kazekane clan about a decade ago, seemingly just because he was starting to get a little bit old and is now seemingly living in a little shack along a river in this small Japanese mountain town far removed from the various struggles between the different daimyo of Sengoku Jidai, Japan. I hope y'all enjoy this next episode of One Guy, One Roll, where we are starting episode three of the solo role-playing game, Ronin. So, without further ado, let's get into it. The days pass swiftly for Ginjiro, who is once again training under the supervision of his once mentor, Shin, the Naginata master. Although too old and frail to really take part in the more vigorous training with Kinjiro, Shin is still more than capable of passing along the knowledge he has gained over the decades and countless hundreds of others he has taught how to use this long Japanese polearm. For those who are unaware, a naginata is basically a Japanese-style spear. Although, unlike a Western spear, which just has a sharp point on the end, the naginata has a short-bladed tip. You can still use it for piercing, but it's also predominantly used for slashing. It's about the same length you would think of for a standard Western spear, maybe between two and three meters long, and is traditionally utilized by large-scale peasant militias because of its ease of use, relatively speaking, to a sword, as well as just in general throughout history, spears and their relative simplicity to use have been the mainstay of unorganized or peasant militias. Ginjiro, despite not having worked with a naginata in about a decade since he was gifted the katana and indoctrinated into, well, informally indoctrinated into the 
Samurai Corps of the Kazakane fighting force quickly falls back into the routine of utilizing this spear, practicing against posts, against honing in his already well-maintained and muscular body under the direction of this training master, as well as utilizing this long spear and the trick of the water to engage in some spear fishing so the two of them can eat. This naginata belonging to Shin is famous. It is a weapon that is one of a kind. It is a weapon whose blade has been folded like that of a katana and its shaft fire-hardened and nearly as strong as metal. This spear, of course, has a name. It is simply known as Kiru. Before long, the nighttime air takes on a distinctive chill. A chill that heralds the changing of seasons. In fact, after one frosty morning, the very first trees in this mountain village begin to take on the slightest hint of red. Fall is coming. In fact, it is just around the corner. Especially up in the mountains, where Ginjiro now is at this small mountain town, which likely, once the snows begin, will more or less be cut off from the rest of Japan, except perhaps for a few small mountain passes. Ginjiro makes up his mind that it's time to move on. However, Shin manages to convince Ginjiro to at least stay for a couple more days and partake in the small Matsuri, or festival, heralding the end of summer for this small mountain village. Ginjiro reluctantly agrees. A couple days later, the small village of a mere handful of families all gather together and even inviting the two outsiders to come join in the festivities taking small lanterns and floating them down the river, honoring the dead, honoring the death of summer and the birth of winter. This small, intimate festival concludes with a feast, a feast complete with ample offerings of sake provided by the local temple. In fact, the lone monk in charge of this, well, it's a shrine. It's small, little local, one-room shrine in this town. Gets so drunk, he ends up falling into the river, only to be fished out, drenched and soaked to the core by the local townsfolk. Apparently, this tradition has repeated itself throughout the years as well, because it took nobody by surprise. Even old man Shin partook of some of the sake, and taking aside Ginjiro, himself not really one for cups, but never one to forsake tradition, feeling a slight buzz himself. The two of them retire back to the small hut they've been sharing as the villagers prepare to light the massive fire in the center of town, concluding the Matsuri. With the two of them finally sitting down and having a chance to really talk, is there anything that Shin specifically shares with Ginjiro? In this case, we are using the interaction talk. Roll two dice, add our determination, which for us is a three. We succeeded. We roll one dice to learn about past information. As the night stretches on and the bonfire in the center of town rages and begins to die out and everybody disperses back to their various homes, the two men sit in deep conversation and Ginjuro learns. Sheen believes fervently in reincarnation. Shin believes fervently in Buddhism. Buddhism is not native to this land. Buddhism was brought to Japan in the 6th century CE from the mainland, likely by way of the Korean kingdoms. As it entered into Japan, 
this foreign belief changed and adapted to the native religion of Shintoism already present in the archipelago. Of course, through a series of struggles and a little bit of religious strife, eventually these two different religions kind of morphed and melded, becoming, although Japan modern day is quite secular and non-religious, this synchronicity of the religions does still very much exist at a cultural level. However, during this era, a lot of the time, due to the inherent strife and lack of stability, the different Buddhist sects more or less split off from the rest of society, becoming their own individual schools and with their own monastic codes, including the rise of militant Buddhist movements like the Iko-Iki, among others, who even were able to rise in revolt against the daimyo and establish limited self-rule. However, underlying these more structured, organized Buddhist shrines and temples was the indigenous Shinto religion of Japan, kind of a more nature-based, not really multi-theistic, but the belief in kami, or gods, would in- inhabit things in the natural world along with other things. I'm not here to get deep into the religious connotations of Japan, but Shin, throughout his years engaging in warfare and strife, the killing of countless numbers of people, as he was getting older, he began to believe strongly in reincarnation. Indoctrinated into one of these schools of Buddhism, he began to see killing as contradictory to his own beliefs. And the clan that he himself was devoted to, the Kazakani, especially as the political situation across Japan deteriorated into these different daimyo who constantly engaged in conflict with each other with the deterioration of centralized authority. The Kazakhane clan is one of these strong daimyo who just happen to hold strongly with Shinto belief. So much to the point that they more or less declared an outright war within their own territory against the various Buddhist temples around the region. And Shin, being a commander, a leader of the Naginata troops, the spear-wielding militia, was ordered by one of his superiors to sack one of these larger temples in the area and kill the monks who they claimed were spreading false information and dissent throughout the Kazakhane territory. Naturally, Shin was not enthusiastic about this, and in fact, bringing his men to this temple, he watched as they burned and killed everybody inside. At this moment, and not participating in the slaughter himself, Shin realized it was time for him to leave, time for him to turn his back after 50 years of working with the Kazakhani. So he did, leaving one night, taking only his naginata and a few small supplies. He absconded into the darkness, the story of his flight twisted by the clan, the story of his flight being turned into one of him simply resigning. Now, Ginjiro knows the truth. Ginjiro knows the true story behind Shin and his departure from the Kazakani. His story concluded, and with his energy spent, Shin and Ginjiro sit in silence listening to the babbling of the brook and the low crackle of the distant bonfire dying out. Look, Shin, Ginjiro says after a long time passed, I can't stay here. I must continue on. I myself have left the Kazakane, as I'm sure you can tell, and I fear they hunt me, as I'm sure they tried to hunt you. Shin merely nods and gestures at the area around him. 
That's why I've been here for the last decade. It's a simple life, and I fear I won't be long for this world anyways. My time has come to be reborn, Ginjiro. I'm old, and my health is waning. He gestures towards the Naginata leaned up against his shack. Kiru has treated me well, Ginjiro. I know we are different, and you don't necessarily believe as I do. However, I want you to take Kiru with you on your travels. I trust that you are doing the right thing. Please, take it with you, Ginjiro. Just remember that what you kill may one day come back to kill you. And with that, two of them retire for the night. And Ginjiro, early in the morning, with a thin layer of frost crunching beneath his boots, gathers up his belongings, straps his katana to his hip and the Naginata Kiru to his pack, and heads back down the winding mountain road, back down to the crossing of the river where he was accosted by bandits. But instead of continuing back down the road, he makes a sharp turn heading away down a new road, leading him yet further away from the past which still haunts him so. The cool fall air is settling throughout the mountains of Japan. This mountain road, which Ginjiro knew he must traverse before the snows settle in on this mountainous land, leads him to the shore of a great lake. Not a sea like he was traversing before, but a lake. A huge lake whose shoreline can just barely be made out far across its dark, cold waters. The point of this, the point of traversing these mountain roads, is for Ginjiro to avoid the more populated centers of the country, to avoid what was once the great shining capital of the shogunate, now simply crumbling away as the various regions of the country declare independence and break away from this once powerful center of control. The great city itself, now merely divided up between various warring daimyo, constantly under struggle, the powerful shogun, and even the emperor himself, reduced in control to merely the surrounding area. Knowing that inside this great capital, there would be likely representatives from all the great daimyo, including the Kazekani clan, Ginjuro successfully traversed the back roads of the mountains, and arriving upon the shores of the Great Lake, he walks into a large town situated upon the shores of this lake. Now the trees, with their shimmering red and orange leaves, ring the shoreline of this town, some of the leaves even beginning to fall, lazily drifting down to the paths below. Ginjiro seems to be coming more known in the world, for the guards the soldiers of the local daimyo watch him nervously with his fine sword and long naginata strapped to his back as he saunters into town. However, they do nothing to apprehend him. Once again, tales of him being here spread, and certainly if anybody is actually after him, they hear of his arrival on the shores of this great lake. The industrious people of this town appear to not only fish in the productive waters of the Great Lake, but also harvest timber from the great forests which stretch down from the nearby foothills of the mountain, nearly into the township itself. From there, they lash these great logs together, float them down the Great Lake into the mighty river leading into the once powerful capital, where the ineffective shogun and the toothless, ineffective emperor now reside. With the general chaos and degradation of centralized control in the country, 
demand for timber has slumped, and the town has fallen on hard times. However, in spreading what remains of his coin around and finding reasonable accommodation upon the shores of this great lake, Ginjiro learns of a famous weapon master who lives in the area. However, having just acquired the Naginata from Shin, and of course having his own finely crafted blade, although now much nicked and much worn, Ginjiro knows that a larger town like this is likely to cause problems for him, especially being located so close to the once great capital. So, wasting little time at all, Ginjiro follows the lakeshore around to the north and makes his way out to the more sparsely populated northern coastline of the island. Before making his way out to these coastal roadways, there's one last chain of mountains he must cross. While not as daunting as the ones before, there are few who live in this stretch of mountains. And now, with a shower of leaves falling around him, landing soundlessly on the ground, we yet again continue our journey along winding, twisting paths through the mountain. Stopping at a small roadside shrine, the top of the pass of this forest trail, Ginjiro clapping his hands and honoring the kami of this region, asking them for safe passage, turns his head around abruptly at the sound of crunching, fallen leaves behind him, and standing over the back of him is a small man with the biggest eyebrows Ginjiro has ever seen. They are so big that they almost meld into one giant eyebrow across his head. This small yet well-armored man glares down, well, he's nearly eye-level with our seated giant, glares at him, looking at him up and down, noting the katana and naginata beside him. Who are you, and what are you doing in our lands? The little man demands of him. Ginjiro merely looks the man up and down, noting the strange symbol on his armor. Look, I'm not here to cause trouble, Ginjiro says. I'm just passing through the area, minding my own business. Just let me finish up, and I'll continue on my way. The little man snorts at this. I think you're a spy, he says, leveling a finger of accusation towards Ginjiro. I think you've been sent from the capital to figure out what's going on here. Ginjiro quite literally has no idea what this man is talking about. Look, I don't even recognize the symbol on your armor. Who are you? My name is Ginjo. He gets interrupted by the little man. I don't care who you are. What are you doing here? I demand answers now, he says with his hand on the hilt of his katana. Ginjiro is going to try to charm this man. However, we're going to do so at disadvantage because it says that he's unlikely to cooperate with us. Therefore, I'm just going to do like disadvantage in 5e. I'm going to roll two dice and take the lowest. For this, we add our compassion, a two. Here we go. Perhaps it is the honest look of confusion upon his face, or perhaps the little man is all bluster. For when Ginjiro stands up, stretching over two meters tall, he kind of backs off a little bit. My name is Hanzo Kitsune of the Kitsune clan, the little man says, and the next town you come to is under our control. Ginjiro furrows his brow at the name Kitsune, not recognizing it. You must be from one of the clans to the south, the little man says. Your garb is strange, and you do not openly wear the symbols of your house. 
Ginjiro looks down at his tattered attire, matted with dried blood, washed as best as he could in one of the rivers, sweat-stained and faded to the point where you can just barely make out the colors. Mind reeling, Ginjiro hastily makes up a lie. A lie that is also part true. He has been traveling for ages in order to meet as an emissary with the various clans of the north. The little man doesn't really seem to buy the story so much, but nodding his head, he gives him directions, saying that he's likely to be met with apprehension. There's turmoil in this region. Turns out the Kitsune control the largest town along the northern coast of the country. However, until recently, the whole region was dominated by a different clan, whose land is now broken apart and subdivided after a recent rebellion against them heavily implied to have been led by the Kitsune, who now control the original capital city of this much more powerful, now exterminated, clan. Parting ways with a bow and a promise to introduce himself to Hanzo's father, the daimyo of the Kitsune, Ginjiro once again resumes his travels along the road, until at last, making his way down the narrow trail, he spies once again the ocean and seated upon its shores, a small village. A village so inconsequential, it likely doesn't even have a name. Or if it does, Ginjiro does not learn of it. Although out of supplies, and exhausted from his journey across the mountains, Ginjiro spends a couple of days recovering and resting, and we gain one point of determination, bringing our determination up to four. Ginjiro knows that his time is likely running short. His reputation as a traveling, wandering ronin has been growing. People are recognizing him. In fact, the young samurai from the Kitsune would likely have recognized him, if not for the fact he was in a hurry himself to the capital, likely to reveal the events that have occurred along the northern coast. For one clan has fallen, and another has risen to take its place. Although the once sprawling clan, now reduced to a single area, and multiple other little clans have filled in the power vacuum. And with that, our episode comes to a close on the small fishing village along the northern coast of Japan, where Ginjiro takes a breather, breathing in the cold, salty air that promises that winter is coming. Thank you, thank you so much for listening to this episode of One Guy, One Roll. Although given the nature of a system which is entirely driven by dice rolling, the overarching narrative of the story of Ginjiro the Orphan, things are really starting to come together. I'm starting to see a wider narrative emerging out of these little interconnected snippets of information. I really don't know how many episodes that Ronin is going to take, but I've kind of changed the way I view the podcast, at least in relation to these quote-unquote one-shots, and I'm going to maintain the same level of editing and rough length of, well, I guess main story following Nikora Sokolov using Ironsworn Starforged. Trust me when I say that story has not been abandoned. I just needed to take a little break from the system, play something else, and Ronin really has kind of captivated me with not only the setting, but also the system itself and Ginjiro's naturally evolving storyline and interactivity within the world. I don't even know how it all fits together yet. So we're unveiling the telling of this story together. And it's interesting. It's something very different. 
I've never used a system like this. And the whole thing comes together quite remarkably. Anyways, once again, I thank everybody for tuning into the podcast and listening along. I do all of this for all y'all out there, and thank you so much for taking the time out of your day listening to me ramble on for a half an hour. And of course, as always, none of this would be possible without the generous support of my Patreons over on patreon.com slash oneguyoneroll. They help to cover the ongoing costs of the podcast, as well as in the future will allow me to upgrade the equipment I use to provide the level of quality that all y'all deserve for tuning in. Anyways, a huge thank you to my Patreons, especially Journeyman Wes, Journeyman Nick, Journeyman JL, Journeyman Stefan, Journeyman James, Journeyman Matt, and of course, Apprentice Sam. Thanks so much, you guys. Your ongoing support means the world to me. And with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Once again, I've been your player, host, and GM Hero Cities. Thank you so much for listening to the One Guy, One Roll podcast. Have a great day and stay safe out there, y'all.